Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Corey Simon. I'm a United Methodist pastor serving in Southwest Michigan, and I live with my wife, a life that is working towards becoming a little more self-sufficient, a little more egalitarian, maybe even a little more free. On a good day, you could find me out back at the parsonage working at my forge, maybe beating a gun into a garden tool and working against the power of death as best as I know how. I've been podcasting in one form or another since 2016 when I began with three friends a show called Colloquy Interrupted. Though it was semi-aimless in its focus, the show tried to stay relevant to our experience as pastors. From there, I worked on a podcast for a short while in 2019 called The Open Pew, but much like Colloquy, for one reason or another, it just didn't work out. And so here I am in podcast number three, and with this show, I wanted to focus the series on something very near to my heart and my theology that is the topic of the powers and principalities. And so welcome to the Powers and the Pastorate podcast. When I sat down and focused on designing this show, I began with the knowledge that when I refer to the powers and the principalities, many, if not most, people don't actually know what it is that I'm referring to. The powers, the principalities, these are a bit of an antiquated term, one that Protestantism especially largely did away with following the Reformation. And so I think what's needed most is something of an overview, a bit of groundwork to set the stage for the episodes that will follow. And to do this, I want to begin with some of my own background, specifically in the narrative that I was raised with. Stop me if you've heard this. We were born sinners, and thus we were born alienated from God. And so God, needing some way in which to save us, sent his son Jesus into the world so that he could lay down his life in order to cloak us in his righteousness, so that we might be saved from our wicked ways and enter into heaven rather than fall away into the hell that God either sends us to or, through not wanting to override our freedom, allows us to go to and to choose for ourselves. Like many of us, I imagine that this is the Christianity that I was brought up in, and so I never really questioned it. At least not until I grew a little older and a little wiser, and I began to realize that certain parts of the narrative just didn't work. They just didn't make sense. Questions arose such as, if Christians are supposed to be saved by the blood alone, and if we're supposed to see the work of the Holy Spirit on the lives of Christians, then why is it that so often it seems like some of the worst behaving people are Christians and some of the best aren't? Now, of course, I knew the answer to this, that we are to judge not that God knows the heart, that it's not about our actions, but about our faith. And yeah, I, I know all of that. But at the same time, this never really sat well with me. For instance, I'm recording this the day after the news of Jerry Falwell Jr.'s fall from grace is broken. And so I set out to find an alternative explanation, something that was more life-giving, something that actually made sense to the world we lived in. And so in my final year at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C., I took a class with New Testament scholar Dr. Carla Works on the Book of Romans. For the final project, the final exegesis in that class, we were to put together something studying the topic of the theology of Paul. And so I opted for a study on Paul's thoughts regarding the character of Satan, or the figure of Satan, whatever we want to call him, or it, or them. 
But what I found when doing this was, at the time, somewhat surprising to me, because what I found was that of those works that are thought to be authentic Pauline epistles, the oldest books in the New Testament canon, there wasn't much to say regarding Satan. Only about seven verses in total, and what was more present, I realized, was that especially in Romans, Paul seemed to be more interested in the powers specifically the powers of sin and death, more so than he was in the character of Satan. The powers of sin and death. This left me with more questions, and with a little more time and study, I was offered some book recommendations by my friend Ethan, who pointed me towards the work of Arthur McGill and William Stringfellow, two theologians, one trained in philosophy and the other a Harlem lawyer and ethicist, who were writing about similar topics at around the same time from the 50s to around the mid-80s. What I found when coming to these theologians was something different than the classical evangelical framework that I had been brought up on. What I found was a theological framework for the powers and the principalities. The powers and the principalities. In the terms of another name worth familiarizing yourself with, Walter Wink, these powers and principalities are at once visible and invisible, earthly and heavenly, spiritual and institutional. In essence, they are those ruling forces in our lives and in our world which exert their will over us. Now, for some of us, we might stifle and be tempted to reject this message as we might see it as archaic and superstitious, but understanding these creatures, these beings, as something alive is vital to understanding any real conversation that will follow after this episode. For much of the early history of the church, the creatureliness of the powers and principalities wasn't something in question. It was central to understanding Christ's role in the world because Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, was thought to be not merely resisting the powers of the world, the powers of sin and death, redeeming and saving, laying down his life for them. Rather, Christ was seen as resisting the very ruling powers of this world that extend beyond humanity. Christ was resisting. As Origen wrote in the 3rd century, he was stripping and triumphing over the principalities and powers by the wood of the cross. And so the notion for much of the early history of the church was not merely that Jesus died, that Jesus laid down his life. No, the notion or the recognition was that Jesus was killed. Jesus was executed by an unjust and wicked system of powers and principalities that rule over the world. As I said, for ancient people, these forces were thought of as alive in their own right, creatures that exert their will over us, and yet creatures that had been created for specific purposes. Creatures like us with specific vocations and tasks. What tasks? Well, well, where friend and mentor Bill Wiley Kellerman wonders in his own book, Principalities in Particular, what is the vocation of a dam? And I would be tempted to assert what might be seen as an oversimplification, saying the vocation of a dam is the same as the vocation of any creature. To observe those greatest commandments held up by Christ, to love the Lord with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself, or as we might otherwise phrase it, their vocation is to serve goodness and life. 
What this means is that these powers and principalities are not so much evil in and of themselves, rather they are fallen. They're turned over to their selfish interests. They're turned over towards serving death rather than life. Walter Wink perhaps said it best in his own liturgy, the powers are good, the powers are fallen, the powers must be redeemed. Now in a moment I'll circle back to identify just what some of these powers are, but first I want to lay out some biblical groundwork because some will inevitably ask for the biblical evidence, the proof, so to speak. And so while references to the powers and principalities are rampant throughout the New Testament and works of the early church fathers and mothers, three passages in particular come to mind. In Ephesians 6.12, we read, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are not people in the eyes of this theology. Rather, our enemies are the forces behind the ideas of people, ideologies, we might say, creatures that extend beyond humanity. But if this is the case, then what hope do we really have? And for that, we might turn to Romans 8, 31 through 36. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The God who did not withhold God's own Son, but gave up Christ for all of us, will this God not, with Christ, also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through the God who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage closes with that rather extensive list of the forces that may attempt to separate us from God's love, and yet Paul goes on to say that these forces don't have the ability to do so, and perhaps that's because of their ordering, their subversion. And for that we turn to Colossians 1.15, what is considered by some to be an ancient liturgical creation hymn, tying Christ into the narrative of creation itself. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in Christ all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Christ may come to have first place in everything. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. For ancient Christian understandings, the powers and the principalities were essential to understanding Christ's redeeming work, because not only was God saving us from the forces of some abstract evil, 
God was redeeming us, God was redeeming the world, ordering all the powers and the principalities, all the thrones and dominions, all the things of creation and returning them to their rightful order, allowing them to return to their own proper vocation, that of serving God and neighbor, serving goodness and life. So all of that being said, I want to turn towards an effort to identify these powers and principalities. William Stringfellow identified them in our modern language perhaps most succinctly, and later Walter Wink further methodized an understanding of them, but they are ultimately comprised of three main forces, these being ideologies, images, and institutions. An institution is perhaps the most clearly visible example of a principality in that an institution is a thing that has a visible and invisible weight. An institution is a thing that exists beyond the mere will of a CEO or board of directors. An institution carries with it a will of its own, a weight of its own legacy, a concern for its own self-preservation. While McDonald's might have its CEO here in America, Chris Kamzinski, operating, McDonald's extends beyond him, just as it extends beyond the board of directors, just as it extends beyond the shareholders or the employees or any one person or any one group of person. In a sense, it is alive in its own right. Now, if you struggle with me here, that's, again, understandable, but perhaps we could put it into the language of corporate personhood established by the Supreme Court ruling in 1978, this being when corporations were legally recognized as people under the law, and so they were able to act as people rather than as businesses. Ideologies are next. Ideologies like institutions extend beyond the individual or even the collective unit. Rather, an ideology is a thing with a life out of, it, of its own. A life that is ever willing to adapt and change so to preserve its own existence. For Stringfellow, the most pressing and clear example of this would be white supremacy. White supremacy had its origin in the first century Rome when the historian Tacitus wrote a history on the Germanic people called Germania. There he described these people as exceptional in relation to other people groups. And as the centuries went on, these Germans integrated, they immigrated, and they intermingled with the Saxon people, and the Anglo-Saxon identity arose, an identity that easily made the journey across the Pacific and into the Americas, where the founding fathers, amongst others throughout our history, elevated the interests of the Anglos, those who would come to be known as the Wasps, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, over any other ethnic group. However, in recent decades, this Anglo-Saxon identity has given way as cultural heritage has become often so dispersed that it's unrecognizable. And so as whiteness was increasingly held up as something to be separated from blackness, what happened was that whiteness became the thing that remained. And yet, despite all the change, despite the work against it, despite the very real revulsion that most people actually have when they hear the word white supremacy spoken of, it still clings as an ideology people hold onto without even realizing it. 
Finally, we have images. Images are at once simple and complex in understanding and articulating. On one hand, you have the image itself. For Stringfellow, he would often use the image of Marilyn Monroe or Elvis and talk about how the image of these people live on long after the person, but I might offer a more contemporary example of Donald Trump. A Donald Trump is a man who is based on his image. Both the literal image that he puts out into the world and the persona he exhibits. The truth is that no one or next to no one knows Donald Trump. We know the image, and it would seem in the instance of Donald Trump, the image has overshadowed and even possessed the person. Now, why is all of this important? Well, I would say it's because of allegiances, because of the actions that people take, because it points us to what it is that we're dealing with when we interact with people. It offers us a more robust understanding of human nature in that we can begin to realize how often our wills are not our own. We do not have the free will that Calvinism or Arminianism seems to think we have. Our wills are often influenced, if not overpowered, by the principalities, images, ideologies, institutions, and most often what divides us in our relationships with each other is not personality, it's not character traits. What divides us often in our day and age is the power of the principalities. So Thanksgiving dinners become dueling ideologies as Uncle Bill and Aunt Carla pit liberalism and conservatism against each other. A funeral becomes a war over institutions as the family tries to sort out how the family business will be split. Or a wedding reception becomes unruly when the cousins can't agree on which image of Joe Biden is more acceptable and more accurate. Now, this is not to say that people are off the hook for their actions. However, it does aid us in reframing and recognizing the why of people's actions. In a very real sense, these principalities influence us. They overpower us. They possess us. They dehumanize and they demand sacrifices, promising us immortality if we only serve them. Immortality in memory, if nothing else. The issue with the principalities, though, is that in the end, they're aimless. Their actions, their motivations are so corrupted by their own self-interest that they've lost sight of their actual vocations, their actual purpose for being, and so a dam in Midland, Michigan becomes a tool of channeling money rather than a tool of providing energy or at least protection for those lying in its path. They often become so focused on their own self-interest that they will take and consume everything and demand everyone sacrifice and give endlessly so that they may maintain their existence. Examples of this? Well, look no further than the reactions to the threatened removal of Confederate statues or the removal of Aunt Jemima. I had many people on Facebook who were absolutely livid, absolutely heartbroken that Aunt Jemima would be no more, never mind that Aunt Jemima is just an image on a pancake mix. Somehow she's become something to preserve, something to become enraged over, something worth damaging relationships over. Aunt Jemima can't be allowed to die, she just can't. So why do I say all this? Why did I take 20 or 30 minutes of your morning or afternoon 
to do this. What is it about this flavor of theology that so captured my attention? Well, it's that it's practical. It has weight, it has realness. The principalities are nothing if they're not practical. Stringfellow developed his language of the principalities while working as a lawyer in Harlem, and I continued to develop my own understanding in this season as I encounter them in my own church, in my own community setting, especially as COVID continues to rage. And so what is offered, I would say, freedom. Genuine Christian freedom. And what genuine Christian freedom means is freedom for, not just freedom to. The popular conception of freedom in America tells us that we are free to do whatever we want, provided we don't hurt anyone else. But Christian freedom tells us that freedom is intended for a purpose. Freedom is intended for the good. To be free is to serve and pursue goodness rather than evil. It is to pursue our vocation, our purpose, our meaning for life. Again, simply put, to love God and love neighbor, to serve goodness and life. Ultimately, what recognizing and unmasking the power means is that we recognize that while we live in a world of powers and principalities, we're not entirely subject to them. The fact is that we have to contend with them, we have to deal with them and their power, especially over our own lives and the lives of others. We can never really escape them, but we are freed from their will. As Kellerman writes in his book again, the situation we are in is worse than you think, but you are freer than you know. What is perhaps the greatest reminder we can receive in terms of our freedom, it is this. In Christ, we've received freedom from the fear of death and all of its effects. We have given freedom from the all-encompassing effects of the principalities on us because we can recall the central truth of the principalities. The principalities serve death, not life. It is death from which they draw their authority, and what that means is that the worst thing a principality can do in the end is kill you. But beyond that, they have no real power. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of the Powers in the Pastorate podcast. I'm so grateful to have you here. If you have questions or comments or anything like that, feel free to leave a message and you might end up on the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Corey Simon, and I'll see you next week.